1: To Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the virtual studio are Sally Christie. Hello, hello. And Flick Ford. Howdy. We will get flashbacks of terrible, toxic offices we've all worked in with Melbourne filmmaker Kitty Green's debut dramatic film, The Assistant. We'll play Flix chat with Kitty, all about her inspirations and intentions with her film. And finally, we'll go back to Nam with Spike Lee's new joint for Netflix, the Five Bloods. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films and other things, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Um, I can run through the tags, but uh, <laughs> it's a, a primal screen show at Facebook, primal underscreen, under screen. I always say underscreen <laughs> primal underscore screen underscore show on Instagram and primal underscore screen at Twitter. Now, as we've got so much to chat about and uh, two interesting films, including our first cinema release in three months um, and a terrific in depth interview. Let's just dive into our first film of the evening, shall we?
2: And here you are, sitting in my office, stressed out, jealous of some new assistant who's who's getting more attention than you. I'm I'm not not jealous. I, I was just I was worried for the scroll. She's a woman.
1: The Assistant is the debut dramatic feature film from Kitty Green, known for directing the documentaries casting John Bennet and Ukraine is not a brothel. We follow a day in the life of Jane, played by Julia Garner, who is an assistant to a powerful movie executive. As Jane follows her daily routine, small events, observations and aggressions, both micro and macro, build up as she grows increasingly aware of the insidious abuse that threatens every aspect of her position. Sally, did this day in the life of a... uh, uh, harassed uh, assistant, remind you of some uh, past gigs that you've worked in the past? Oh, yeah, it certainly did. Certainly did.
0: Um, I'm I'm a fan of Kitty Green. I was really excited to see this because, yeah, her previous documentary work I have just adored. Her approach to storytelling is so fantastic and I, I feel really unique. Uh, when I first saw casting Jean Bonnet I was so surprised at the way that entire documentary played out, and the same thing with the assistant um, i didn 't know too much about the assistant before I watched it. I knew vaguely what it was i didn 't realize it was a day in the life of and the way that Kitty Green has executed that is absolutely phenomenal at how we kind of feel everything that jane 's going through, and like you were saying, these small things and these huge things that she 's dealing with just become you know, so all-consuming when you're watching them. And you, she, what's her name, Jane Gardner?
1: Uh, but, Julia Gardner. Julia. Yeah. I
0: haven't seen her in anything else.
2: She's in Ozark. She's
0: oh, in okay, Ozark. okay. But really? she is absolutely kind of, yeah. phenomenal in this. So um, I was
2: about to say she's also in The Americans. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she's just incredible. The way that she uses her body in this film really blew me away. She doesn't have a whole heap of dialogue. But her facial expressions, her body language, it just conveys so much. Um, Yeah, I was so impressed with this. And it was really powerful because it obviously, I guess, there's the comment on the Me Too movement. But like you were saying, Paul, it really does hit a chord with anybody that's worked in an office place where you see this shit going on. And especially when you're young, in your 20s, that – it kind of feels like this is the entire world and if I lose this, everything's going to go, which mm. of course is not the case. And that gets conveyed so well in this film. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant.
2: Yeah, I actually I found like I had, there was too much resonance for me with watching this. Yep. So mm-hmm. Unfortunately, can um, very much um, felt as though Jane, played by Julia Gunner, was really bringing true an experience experiences I'd had personally Mm. and also had witnessed in various office places and so there was something kind of both painful watching this in a lot of ways and quite difficult viewing but also strangely cathartic um just to focus in on someone who's kind of just at the lowest rank really of the, the company she's just started she's two three months in and um, she's reminded when she does try to raise the issue that she is, um, there's lots of people after her job and that she's uh, replaceable. And I think that, unfortunately, that is a really common experience. Mm-hmm. And um, it really, it's kind of interesting that there's been comparisons made with um, how... Because this film, um, we're talking about Kitty Green's The Assistant, exists in the same sort of universe as um, Bombshell. And I think that, like, there's lots of comparisons made about.
0: um... I didn't see Bombshell. I haven't seen it. Oh, really? Yeah.
2: We we actually reviewed it um, Mm. on the show. I can't remember exactly when. I think it was was
1: briefly in our summer show. Yeah, I I didn't catch it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I. I wasn't wild about it, but I think that um, it's really interesting because with that one, that's such a these larger than life characters, and they're kind of very powerful women who have a very public platform. Whereas with the assistant, Jane is not known, and she is um, she could so easily just kind of get pushed pushed out of the company, and and mm-hmm. she doesn't have any agency really. And when she does try to um, do something about it, she kind of gets um yeah it's made very difficult for her and um I think that there's something really powerful about telling that story and I I just found that was really interesting and also her the formal style of the film has a lot more um in common with I'd say Chantal Ackerman's work like um Jeanne yeah. Dillman um really similar sort of style of just showing almost static shots of a woman going about her daily processes in the office there's something um for for people who really love kind of art cinema. I think this film has a lot to offer in that way. Um, but and also more broadly, just having having a film that has such a seemingly a narrow focus, we're just going to concentrate on this life, this day in the life of an assistant, but then having these like tentacles of influence in in every workplace. And I love the fact that it's kind of flattened. The workplace could be any workplace. I, I really uh, resonated with this film very strongly. Yeah,
0: I thought that... Um that was really a stroke of brilliance where we don't really see her boss's face or anything like that, that that's kind of left up to the imagination because then it could be anybody that, um yeah, that, you know, it's kind of why she's done that. Yeah. Really loved it.
1: But that extra, extra wrinkle of it being the film business though, is that even more somebody would like, this is my only shot. If I'm out of here, yes. I am done. am yep. Um. If I, if I cross this guy, I'm never going to work again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it also put me in mind, Flick, of um, Michael Haneke even, um, of that sort of
2: style. Oh, exactly.
1: Style. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and sort of cold observational, you know, just watching. I really dig this kind of day in the life sort of structure, uh, just sort mm. of following a character through the mm. world as sort of si- the world, situations and behaviours build around them. And I thought Kitty Green did a really great job of constructing and revealing information. And, and it's an unusually quiet film as well, which also yeah, put me in the, mind of Hanukkah, yeah. you know, because it's like, it's mm-hmm. not, there's not that much of a score, yeah. there's not much of a. Um...
2: You're so right with Hanukkah. I mean, I love Hanukkah. Because you're a that huge
1: Hanukkah like, fan, yeah. I love him. I'm yeah. surprised <laughs> you didn't make that comparison. I
2: said, as soon as it opened up, I was kind of like, oh, this is my kind of film. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is, though. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. They, a lot less. It's interesting because is is very violent in a lot of ways. And this is a dizzy kind of violence.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was like, yes. really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: scissors in a bird, you know. And there's also that Thank you. Um, yeah, just got that got that feeling. But the, it's but it's sort of that quietude befits the crushing environment of an office where everyone lives in fear and everyone's too terrified to speak out about yes. anything. Um, I've I, I've liked. Um, <laughs> I've liked Julia Garner a lot in, in other little things. Um, The, the, for those who are non sort of TV people, the first time I noticed her was um Martha Marcy May Marlene.
2: Oh, right. Of course. The, yeah. The
1: Sean Durkin film from almost a decade ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, she's great. And this gives her the lead role she deserves. And she's just really, beautifully subtle here um like you said i i i'm gonna steal a line from another review that i that i saw which is it's almost like you you see her soul being sucked from her body in real time
0: it it really is it's kind of like the way that she is consistently looking more defeated as the film Mm. goes on she's just (laughs) incredible like she was just absolutely phenomenal in this
2: you were saying before sally about how we get to see um her body on on screen a lot and you know, the camera really captures it well. But I think it's it's all in the comportment and micro expressions on her face and it's kind yeah. of amazing that this story is actually told through that performance, which yep. is a very restrained performance and I think mm. it's one that you really can't look away from. Even, um, yeah, she's quite captivating but also you miss a lot if you if mm. you don't pay close attention to it because it's not being told in a direct way. You kind of have to be quite engaged.
0: Yeah, even like the slight movement of her lips and things like that, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah,
1: Yeah. you get the whole boredom and confusion, but also the determination that brought her to this point in her life, and the numb detachment that kind of shields her from her feeling of powerlessness.
2: I love that scene with um. I always pronounce his name wrong. Matthew McFadden. Matthew McFadden. Yeah. He is an amazing actor. I'm, I I'm a huge couch. fan of him as yeah. an actor.
1: Like if anybody here has seen Succession. I
2: love Succession so much. So <laughs> Kitty Yeah, Kitty Green casted him without having seen Succession oh, wow. first. Because yeah. there's another
1: cast member of Succession in this as well. Um, I can never pronounce her name, Dogmara Dominic. She's she's she pops in and out of Succession on a sort of a semi-regular basis. Oh
2: right. Um,
1: but yeah, she's in this as well. So it's shocked. I'm shocked that she'd never seen yeah. the show.
2: Yeah. And it's so it's kind of similar. The role he plays as the HR manager is not that dissimilar to his role as Tom in Succession, where yeah. he he's his an outright bully in succession. And in this way, it's kind of very he's much more charming and a lot more astute, but mm-hmm. he he is able to wield a huge amount of power and he almost becomes the the sort of soldier stand-in for the executive. Like he yeah. fights that yeah. executive's battles. And the way in which he just um is really Um, quite cruel to her she she goes to to make a complaint and just his his insult at the end of being like he's not your type anyway he's crushing on a different level it's quite a cutting line but it's um yeah it's so well scripted this film
1: yeah I found him kind of palpably casually chilling Um, yeah
2: I
0: thought that too the sort of unraveling of his callousness that came out
1: yeah, mm. and and he's the gatekeeper for the gatekeeper, yeah. and you can imagine yeah. how many others of the of the, how many other of these gatekeepers mm. there are. And, um, and
2: yeah, and also that idea of when you go to report something, if it is something kind of like just small, like these small little events mm. over time, it is so hard to be like, is this worth ruining my career over? Am it?
0: I overreacting? Yeah,
2: yeah, and, and also that idea of you're not tough enough to be mm. in industries. Like, I yeah. think that's that really rings true.
1: And this is a giant figure and trying to bring them down with something that you may have heard or may have seen or this kind of, this felt a bit off, like it's not the concrete evidence that you think you need. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I'm just going to be dismissed out of hand and I'm going to get ran out of the industry. I also like the whole atmosphere in The Office between her and the two guys yes. in The Office, They're <laughs> uh, played by Noah Robbins and John Orsini. They're so cowardly, they kind of clam up whenever someone's going to get thrown under a bus. But they also take the time to help her out to word her e- apologetic emails know. to you. Yeah. Like yep. to make sure that nobody, you know, it's like to make sure they all escape his wrath, I think. You know, but it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. That's the one time they seem to help her.
0: Then also they really I guess take some power in also letting her know her place consistently Mm. throughout the film as well which is interesting there seems to be these moments of compassion towards her but then they're very quickly taken away
2: yeah Yeah, because they also benefit from it and I suppose like if they're being bullied by him as well they get these little moments this opportunity to also be in the more powerful position in a small way so and that's a
1: trickle like all toxic environments have that kind of trickle down effect Mm. where the the bullied will find someone else to bully to get that frustration out of uh you might enjoy this cell i actually the the boss's calls because you never his his name is never mentioned Mm -hmm. he's um never seen and we just hear these calls are kind of half heard and they reminded me of an unlikely source bob clark's 1974 slasher film black christmas (gasps) and the calls from billy They remind me of that because you've got this sort of garbled, you can't quite work out what's being said. It's just a cacophony of half-heard words and, like, really vicious swear words.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting that you make that comparison.
1: quite abrasive and frightening. Because I was... When I was watching this film, I was struggling,
0: I was really trying to hear what was being said mm. and it couldn't and I would hear what you're saying swear words every now and then and there was this kind of big disconnect and I didn't know if it was intentional or if it was, you know, how I was viewing the film. But yeah, that's very that is a bit really interesting comparison because that is definitely chilling as well. Please. Yeah.
2: Yeah, And it's got a lot of horror elements in a weird oh, way. So. And I th- find it interesting and I was thinking um, it reminded me a little bit of Swallow, which we reviewed earlier in the year and the way in which, like, that gets described as a horror. But it's not really, mm. but it's that thing of, like, when we're dealing with women's issues, sometimes that's the only way to put a name to the violence. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> like, I think that there is a sort of confusing middle genre there of like, how do you, there is a violence being put out there and it is kind of, there's this Mm. threatening, menacing presence, but it's not a horror, I don't think. So it's kind of, I think that sometimes as film reviewers, we struggle to categorise
1: it. Mm. Let's just put it out there now. Women live through a horror movie every day. Yeah. (laughs) And
3: and also,
0: uh, horror is definitely, I think, uh, a female genre. <laughs> the yeah. genre.
2: So true. So true, yeah. There's so much great work, like really mm. good research done into yeah, yep. the female body and horror.
1: And how, yeah, how gendered the, the mm. genre can be. But, mm. yeah, and and like uh, bring it back to Haneke. Like his, you know, a lot of his films feel horror adjacent as well. And if this yeah. is playing mm. in that kind of idiom, it's a really impressive debut. Um, incredible like yeah,
0: yeah she did not disappoint like i said I, i've i've been a fan of hers and um yeah was so excited to see this and she's really done an incredible job
1: so the assistant was on available on uh, certain renting uh, uh, rental platforms but it's been taken down because it's uh will be screening in selected cinemas from monday june 22nd including the nova alito and classic you're listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR.
3: Triple R on FM Digital online via the app.
1: You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So before the break, we reviewed Melbourne director Kitty Green's new film, The Assistant. Um, Kitty has emerged as one of our best documentarians with the. Um, uh, the documentary about Russian feminist punk band Femin, or Pussy Riot, um, Ukraine is Not a Brothel, and casting Jean Bonnet, which was about the uh, Jean Bonnet Ramsey murderer and its subsequent media focus. Um, while The Assistant has its roots in the structural sexism of the film industry exposed by the Harvey Weinstein case, Green chose this to make her narrative dramatic film debut as director. On the eve of The Assistant's release, Kitty Green very fi- uh, very kindly took the time to chat to our very own Flick Ford about why she chose to tell this story as a fictional feature and what informed her creative choices. Take it away, Flick.
2: Hello, this is Primal Screen on 3RRR. I'm Flick Ford and with me on the line is the director, writer and editor of The Assistant, Kitty Green. Kitty, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you for having me. Ah, Our pleasure. So your film The Assistant tells the story of an underappreciated assistant to an abusive and volatile, high-powered film executive. There are, of course, parallels um, to be made with the Harvey Weinstein case, and you've mentioned in other interviews that um, the film is kind of inspired by those events somewhat. What exactly uh, was it about the case that prompted you to start writing this film?
3: Ooh, um, it actually began before that. I was... uh kind of exploring kind of the subject of misconduct and gendered environments um, by chatting to kind of college students in the U.S. because at the time that's where a lot of those conversations were being had. This is pre kind of the rise of the Me Too movement. Um, and so I was going around to colleges chatting to students and then the Weinstein story broke and my phone kind of blew up because a lot of my friends – a few of my friends had worked for him and a few of my friends had worked for similar kind of predatory – toxic um, bosses so uh, yeah I sort of switched focus to work environments in the film industry and looking at what's keeping women from getting into positions of power essentially um, in those environments.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I do love that the film, even though it's set within the film industry, um, as far as him being a film executive and her working for him, it's not, it could be really any office in any sort of industry. Um, I really, um, I thought that was really well captured. And I understand you did a considerable amount of research in developing the film. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what that process involved and why you feel that that was important?
3: Yeah, I mean, I started just chatting to, I mean, I was looking at kind of the coverage of the Me Too rumors essentially and the way it was sort of focused on the predators, on the kind of bad men, the rotten apples and kind of this idea that if we get rid of them, Uh, everything will be fine (laughs) and I felt like the problem was so much bigger than that and and kind of cultural and structural so I started chatting to women about their work environments what was it about their work environment that was preventing them from kind of climbing the ladder Uh, microaggressions gender division of labor sexual harassment um, corrupt HR departments all that stuff so those kind of conversations formed the screenplay essentially Um, but I started in the film industry and kind of broadened out to women in finance and tech and architecture and engineering and was hearing the same
2: stories over and over again. Yeah, and I know that you um, I know you studied narrative film at VCA, um, but all of your previous films have been documentaries. We've got the um, 2013 documentary Ukraine is Not a Brothel, which is about the controversial feminist group Femin, and you've got Casting Jean Benet, which is kind of like a true crime metadoco about the death of Jean Benet Ramsey, um, and also the, the short um, documentary short 2015's uh, The Face of Ukraine. I was interested with all of this research that you've done and all of these interviews you've had um, there seems like there would have been a lot of real life experiences that you've drawn upon um, and so The Assistant could just as easily have been told as a documentary what, what do you think that narrative form offers the story?
3: Um, I mean there's a few kind of ways to answer that but firstly I mean I had a lot of experiences on the film festival circuit myself promoting those movies where I was, wasn't being as Taken as seriously as my male colleagues, and often get sort of the, there'd be a lot of kind of sort of underhanded, like well kind of comments that were very – I found offensive, but nobody else noticed or kind of ignored. And whenever I kind of bring them up, someone would say, oh, just ignore it, you know, whatever. And I kind of felt like, no, all that stuff, the accumulation of that stuff really affects somebody's self-confidence in the industry. And so I really wanted to kind of show that, kind of amplify those tiny moments that often get overlooked – For an audience and show and give people the experience of what it's like to be the youngest woman um, in an office like that, a very toxic and kind of corrosive atmosphere. Um, So, yeah, that was partly it. Um, Also, I mean, yeah, what was, I guess it was sort of more trying to make sure, I mean, there's a lot of statistics and facts and things in the news, but trying to make sure people fully understood kind of the emotional reality of what these environments are doing to young women and, and how and why women aren't climbing the ladder, so essentially it sort of just seemed to work better in that form. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, and I was thinking that your film actually, and I know you worked with your, um, with the cinematographer you've worked with quite a few times, Michael Latham, um, who you also did your previous two documentary um, features with, and there's a real observational style to how you capture Julia Garner who plays um, the uh, assistant Jane. Was that a was that a deliberate attempt to sort of bring in those elements of documentary style, or was it is it more of a um, yeah you mean like I just a visual like... style or just yeah sort of yeah I thought that like there's so many processes of of Jane just photocopying um, and just sort of walking through and you kind of just remain with her the the camera just stays trained on her as you walk through these kind of fluorescent lit hallways by herself and i wondered whether it kind of did remind me a lot of um your documentary style where kind of things are yeah. events are unfolding out onto the on the screen
3: yeah i mean i don't know it was sort of it's a bunch of things Like when I was, I remember pitching this movie to a friend, you know, when we were just sort of starting, I was starting to script it. And I said, Oh, it's about a woman who works for a predator. And, and a friend of mine said, Oh, the enablers that like really quickly. And I thought, well, oh, it's a really mm. difficult position for someone, especially a young, very young person in an entry level position to be in. Um, and calling them an enabler that quickly was something I wanted to make sure I was exploring kind of the complexity of, of where she, what, where she was at. So, Time became really important when we were kind of writing, putting the screenplay together because I really wanted to make sure you would experience the day like she would. So she's doing mostly kind of banal administrative tasks, but one in every seven is something a little off or a little suspicious or a little provocative, but she doesn't have enough evidence to really be able to prove that her boss is up to no good. So she's kind of giving me bits and pieces, but she has the dots but can't join them essentially. And so I wanted to make sure an audience was experiencing that, you know, accurately and authentically. So that that became partly why it feels kind of observational in tone.
2: Mm, absolutely. And you really get a sense of that when Jane has the meeting with the HR manager um, played with um, sinister um, kind of charm by uh, Matthew McFadden. Um, and I thought that that was a really powerful scene for the very fact that it often is um, the recording or the reporting of of those moments, those tiny moments, like you said. Um, that make it quite difficult to uh, real action to happen. And I suppose a film that it, it kind of exists in a similar world to, in this kind of world of powerful men who are abusing their power and, and women who are being harassed and abused by them, um, would be Jay Roach's Bombshell. Um, but The Assistant has such a different style and approach. And I was thinking, um, especially the film executive at the centre of your film, is never actually seen, but he, he occupies his omnipresence. Um, through abusive phone calls and emails and and also in the whispered conversations between staff and I thought it was really interesting that he's often just referred to as he which has an almost reverential tone not dissimilar to, say, the reverence given to religious icons and it reminded me a little bit of Darren Aronofsky's um, film Mother and I was curious to um, hear about your thinking behind keeping the film executive um, unknown.
3: Yeah, right. Um, I... I mean, originally I wanted to, like, center women in the narrative. That was kind of the first goal. And I felt like we'd give enough screen time to the to the bad men. Um, and it was about time we sort of told stories about women and what's keeping women from positions of power, like i sort of for. Um, but so that became kind of the first thing. But I did need to know I, – I did you need a sense how – just how powerful – he was and what kind of power he had over the employees in that office. So we needed to kind of include him in sort of moments. And so his voice becomes very important, like with phone calls, he calls her and berates her over the phone. And all of that stuff had to be kind of calibrated so that it felt like you got a sense of him, but it wasn't his story. It remains hers. You know what I mean?
2: Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I I thought that was a really powerful decision to make. Um it's also I mean the, your film is is in a lot of ways quite a difficult watch I definitely had a lot of um felt a lot of resonance with Jane and um it requires spectators to confront their own complicity in workplace abuse and I was wondering whether it was difficult for you to secure funding for this film did you have any pushback Yeah I mean a lot
3: actually oh. um it was it, it was an interesting process um it, it, we'd often like, we got the script finished and we were sending it around to production companies. And we'd always have like the female executive really excited about it. And she'd be like, Yeah, we're going to do it. We're, <laughs> we're on board. And she's like, I just got to show my male boss or my boss. And it, a day later, we'd get this email going, I'm sorry. I, you know, I can't get him to even read it. He's heard, He knows what the subject matter is. And there's a bunch of reasons why it makes people uncomfortable. But, um, I mean, firstly, I think anyone that takes it on would have to kind of interrogate their own power structures and their own work environments, and I think a lot of companies aren't ready to do that yet. So, yeah, it was very disappointing. But we ended up finding kind of the right team who made let us do it our own way, and yeah, it was a great, a great group. So, yeah. Fortunate in the end.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I noticed um, I've been re-watching a lot of your films uh, this this past week and there's so many common themes around like the performative female body. You've got um, focus on figure skaters and beauty pageants and also the radical performativity of female bodies like the activists in Femin and the violations against that body that we see in, well, don't see in The Assistant. And um, I was just kind of, and, and it also kind of um, resurfaces in casting Jean Bonnet. And I was wondering, do you feel a... A social ro- responsibility as a filmmaker?
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm not sure. It, I mean, that's something... I mean, of course, yes, but it's not like... I guess I gravitate towards subjects that interest me and then try and kind of pick them apart and figure out why I have a problem with them or what I want to say that's not being said in the media or I kind of throw them around a little bit. It's like The Assistant was obviously a reaction against just so much coverage being about Harvey Weinstein and not being about power structures. And, and Jean Bonnet was a reaction against kind of the press, the insane press coverage that of the, that sort of surrounded that trial. So, yeah, I, I mean, there is a responsibility definitely. Um, but you, I think it starts with sort of sort a of, sort of passion for some kind of particular subject or just a curiosity. Um, and then I guess... Yeah, there's a lot of lot to think about on the way along the way up the shop yeah
2: absolutely and I was thinking the way in which you you don't actually um, you kind of keep it open and do push the spectators to consider their own role there's a lot of smaller characters that haven't received that much um, um, discussion in in reviews and things like that where um, and there's a female um, not, you know other female workers in the film who who also are complicit in there and I liked the fact that um, while it's gendered it is also um, allowed by an entire culture of silence um, and it's a really powerful case study of that
3: yeah I mean I re- originally there's some of the I, one of the worst, worst. I mean, the most hard-hitting I guess, or um, insidious maybe lines in the movie was originally kind of scripted for a man to say. And then a friend of mine read the script and said to me, oh, you know what? We should give that one line to a woman. And I thought that was kind of a, a good observation. It's something like it's not so simple as men, bad, women, good. Like, there, it's a really complicated situation. We're all kind of complicit in this system that's hurt and sideline women for this many years and um, yeah and we need to think about our roles and and how to change things moving forward all of us we have a duty to so
2: Yeah. yeah definitely absolutely and you're a woman who's worked in the film industry for several years as a director cinematographer writer producer and editor and I wonder what advice you have for women who are either interested in making films or currently working in the industry
3: well, I'm not, not sure. I I kind of self-generate. I make my own – kind of come up with my own ideas and kind of show them to people and get people – try and get people excited about them. I'm not someone that kind of waits for things to come to me. So I I, mean, I always suggest that's an easy way to I – mean, not an easy way, but like the best way to get going and kind of make your own stuff is be really passionate about something and kind of, yeah, and build it and kind of develop it as much as you can in your spare time and then try and get some, some support. So, yeah, it makes things, basically. I mean, we've kind of got the tools now. Like, it's a lot easier with DSLRs and iPhones even to make to make films and movies and media. So, it's it's a good time for it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Kitty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
3: Oh, thank you for having me. Lovely to yeah, chat. Right.
1: Thanks for uh, chatting with us, uh, Kitty Green, and great work, Flick. Thanks. Obviously, <laughs> Obviously, Kitty enjoyed the chat because you'll be hosting not one but two Q&As after screenings with her after screenings of The Assistant, uh, the first at the Classic Cinema in Elstonwick next Monday, Monday June 22nd at 7pm, and then at the Lido Cinema in Hawthorne on Tuesday, June 23rd at 7pm. Yeah, please come along. So jump online and book your tickets now, listeners. Now, I um I have a retraction to make. So I said that Ukraine is not a brothel was about the, quote, <laughs> Russian feminist punk band Femin. They're not a Russian feminist punk band at all. They're a Russian protest feminist protest movement. <laughs> and the punk band Pussy Riot is tangentially involved. So I got my wires crossed on that one, so I apologise, <laughs> listeners. Just wanted to clarify that. And also, it's just occurred to me I referred to... Um, Ukrainians as Russians I'm just going to see myself out <laughs> now so, uh, many
2: <laughs> so many
1: corrections so many corrections that one thing sorry Monday. I haven't seen the movie I do apologize um the the, the Ukraine is not a problem not the assistant <laughs> love the assistant let's just clarify that you're listening to the screen on RRR. triple r
2: triple r
1: you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson.
3: The Bloods is back! Our <laughs> <My> bloods don't <laughs> die. We just multiply soon yeah, yeah. to be five. <laughs> Amen, man.
1: The Five Bloods is the 24th feature film directed by Spike Lee. Four African-American Vietnam veterans, Otis, Clark Peters, Melvin, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Eddie. Norm Lewis, and Paul Delroy Lindo, returned to Vietnam primarily to recover the remains of their fallen squad leader, Norman Chadwick Boseman, but also for the promise of unearthing treasure they buried there long ago. The four men battle forces of humanity and nature and each other while confronted by the lasting ravages of the immorality of the Vietnam War. Flick, if you could sum up your, your reaction to Spike's newest joint in a Spike Lee title, would it be he got game or closer to she hate me? <laughs> I was pretty proud of that. One. Oh man!
2: Um, Yeah, wow. I'm not. I'm not sure. Always make these questions
0: unanswerable.
2: (laughs) I know you just leave us completely. (laughs) Godsmacked. I'm in a school days. Maybe I
1: got nothing. More better blues.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is so well timed, isn't it? I mean, I know that um, (laughs) Spike Lee did not have this. It's not as though he's, you know cooked this up in a a week yeah (laughs) it's it's obviously (laughs) been in the work for a long works for a long time and um, the timing is just exceptional I um I what was I going to say about that point sorry I um I do think that um it's kind of amazing to think that when you know Black Lives Matter the protesters actually get referenced in this film and it's kind of like really interesting to note that of course this protest and and these um these injustices injustices have been happening for so long. So it's it's kind of like the it defines Spike Lee's um filmography. So um he's obviously um perfectly placed to be dealing with these issues. And I, I think the the timing, particularly for this film, has worked out really well for him. Um, I was so excited to see this. I was um, just even watching the trailer. Um, I mean, he's one of my favourite filmmakers. I think that he has um he's the most recent film, Black Klansman, was um, easily one of my favourites from that year and it was like a really thrilling and evocative film that kind of combined with this black history in a very dark darkly comic and fast-paced narrative it's an exceptional film and I highly recommend checking out Black Klansman if for whatever reason you missed that Mm. um and I mean this this film um has a lot of the markers of the Spike Lee joint so you've got like the dolly shot which I was really happy to see um and that appears in like Malcolm X and Black Klansman and, and 25th Hour um and you can also see a lot of Spike Lee's influences in this film so it's kind of um loosely based around the treasure of um Sierra Madre from 1948, um which is apparently Spike Lee's favourite film. And um there's also like nice little nods to um the musical history and Motown, which um the five bloods are named after the members of The Temptation. So there's like these little mm-hmm. Easter eggs throughout the film. Um I I feel like Spike Lee's just such an iconic figure in really being um calling out uh misrepresentation or complete absence of black experiences in mainstream cinema. And I'm always sort of excited to see how exactly he's going to approach that. And he's often criticised as being sort of abrasive, um, but I think that's exactly what I love about his style and I think he's a wonderfully original filmmaker. Having said that, uh, and I know that this is um, just from going by all the positive reviews that I've read of The um, Five Bloods, I know that this is not popular, but um, I don't think that this is that strong a film and I don't think it's in any way his strongest film. Um, I I've, There were some standout moments for me. I did really love Marvin Gaye's what, What's Going On. I thought that was such a really tender um, musical accompaniment to what you're seeing on screen. I loved Hanoi Hanna. Um, I thought that she had a really powerful role to play. And Lee's just so good at coupling real-life footage into a narrative and he makes history not just engaging but cinematic and he makes it really politically charged. So I think that all of those things come out in the film but I do feel like it's quite a messy film with a lot of plot holes and despite these kind of really brilliant sparks of like political urgency and the, um, the compilation that he does with this real-life footage and especially like the storytelling of black soldiers' experiences in Vietnam, which I don't feel like has had enough screen time, I feel like it was a bit too long and it didn't really, um, it wasn't like the best vehicle. It didn't sort of tell that story in the best way. That's my personal feeling. I know that he is like, everyone has loved it, but um, I do know that I'm kind of uh, maybe on my own here, but I'm just excited for what he does next. I'm like, we'll always continue to want to watch his films, but um, this wasn't for me.
3: Really,
0: I I feel like the I've a lot that I've sort of seen and read about this that not everybody is loving it. There's oh, Sal, of, pass me those reviews. Kind <laughs> of what I've got from this, there's from a lot of people. Uh, I guess talking about the massive tonal shifts that happen in this film that feel clunky. I, that didn't feel clunky to me. I liked the way the tone moved in this film. Um, I agree with you, Flick, that there isn't a lot of films that talk about the African American um vet experience. Uh and you know, there's they kind of are just in there in films sort of as a token character if we look at, you know, Full Metal Jacket or anything like that. Um, so it was really refreshing to see um that in a film. My my dad is a Vietnam vet and he really recently oh, wow. met up with um some of his old platoon members and in Vietnam and went on a holiday. And now I'm thinking maybe they were looking for treasure. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You're onto them. But
0: um, yeah, I, I did. I, I think this film had some really great moments, had some really, really brilliant moments, but as a whole, wasn't brilliant. My thing that, that I came away from with this was that we have these core cool characters that we follow for quite a substantial runtime. It's about two hours and 40 minutes long. And I felt like I didn't know these characters very well by the time the film finished um the character development for me really wasn't very present um yeah i I felt like i I didn't know these characters by the end of it and that was yeah like i was saying so for a, a film of this runtime i would kind of expect that where we're going on and we're looking at these characters experiences and their relationships with each other and that is the sole focus of the film that didn't come through for me but um yeah, I, I having said that I did still enjoy the film. I really really did enjoy it. Um yeah, moments of brilliance, but as on a whole it didn't feel consistent, I guess. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've been reading a lot of the same like overwhelmingly positive sort of buzz on this. Um and it's I find that I think a lot of it's dialed into the emotion of the moment
3: yeah because it it is
0: the the, you know that like flick was saying the timing of this film it is yeah
1: yeah. it's it's almost terrifyingly (laughs) pressing but Mm. yeah i i utterly agree i i came out of this and um the first word i mentioned my partner was like what did you think of this was unwieldy yeah um Mm, it's unwieldy and uneven and i i completely agree there's frequent even sustained moments of brilliance in this and, yeah. and, and power. But just as many off-key choices, Spike's never been the most subtle filmmaker and I love him too. I'm a massive fan mm. and I kind of love his, I love that he just goes for it so much. But there's moments here that are just a bit too heavy-handed and just a general bloat, like there's no reason this film needs to be 156 <laughs> minutes and I feel like this film feels like a lot you know, there's, yeah, of, it does. There's, there's like five films jockeying for attention in this movie. Yeah. Mm. There's the story of black America's treatment by their white government. There's the tale of five friends dealing with the scars of the war and then America being confronted by the scars they left on the Vietnamese psyche as well as their own. There's the loose remake of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. There's something. <laughs> there's something about white people trying to do good and look for landmines that just seems like a signifier that, hey, landmines are going to come into this soon. Um, there's a war movie that sticks its head in every half hour it's, it's too much movie it is it's a lot It's yeah. a lot. and How, yeah yeah sorry Fleck? oh I
2: was gonna say I just really disliked some of the character interactions as well like they just really fell flat in a lot of those moments which was such a shame because you've got so much talent in the film and I thought that it just um yeah just really yeah I really hated the script I mean I know that Lee was only, it was his one of four of a writing team, so I'm, I'm not sure. It doesn't have his same snappiness. Like, Black Clansman no, is genuinely hilarious. I felt
0: that yeah. as well. For this to come off the back of the Black Klansman, it was, um, yeah, I guess really high expectations. Mm. And then, of course, this moment that we're living in now raises that
1: ante. Yeah, yep. I...
2: Oh, sorry. It, you go, it's Paul? got a
1: complicated history. Like, it did start out life as a completely different script by two white writers called The Last Tour, about four white soldiers that went... My
0: dad and his mates. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. And then somebody heard that Spike's favourite film was Treasure of the Sierra Madre and gave him the script and then he and his Black Klansman screenwriter retrofitted it to, to fit the black experience. And it okay. does feel like five screenplays mashed together. That's mm, actually yeah, it what does. it feels like. I think the choice... I think you're absolutely right about the... Um, the uh Sally about the character development mm. because I wanted this to be more of an ensemble. Instead he's yeah. been 70% of the film shackled to the MAGA MAGA hat wearing PTSD afflicted ranty rage cage who mm. is constantly putting his friends in danger and riding off his son. And it's like Delroy Lindo's performance is incredible. Yes, like is. I am not throwing shade at the performance, but the character Making him the focus just felt like a choice. <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: felt like I came work. I came away from this and I, I didn't even remember the characters' names. From
1: yeah. The, <laughs> it's it's like, a character like, who dies who you sort of, you barely know and it's it's almost treated yeah. like a comic beat. Yeah. yeah,
2: also like that particular bit, we won't ruin it for you, but when that particular character dies, it actually undoes the basic logic of the film. Yeah. <laughs> <I mean, laughs> So it doesn't – anyway, yeah. <laughs> when you watch it, you'll get it. But I was just like, wait, what? <laughs>
1: and, and, you know, 60-year-olds playing their 20-year-old selves in Vietnam. I, I know it was shorthand yeah. to get to know who they are, but it just felt a bit jarring. I, I didn't mind, mind that
2: either. either. You I didn't mind hate that either? because mm. I actually thought it's all about trauma. So the, I saw it more as a memory. And yeah, I kind of yes. liked the fact yeah, that they switched pretty. to the different format for
1: those. I mean, the there was some bits ratio, I did like. That, that yeah. was
0: cool, yeah, yeah. There was definitely some really, really good moments in this
1: film, oh. but and the that, that, There's one character where Delroy Lindo's character has a speech to camera that reminded mm. me so much of Edward Norton's speech yes. to the mirror in the 25th hour. And it was and even backed by the same kind of rising music, which yeah. I really liked. And, and
2: also, yeah, and, and 25th hour was perfectly, not perfectly timed, but it also yeah. is a response to... Um, 9-11. So you've kind of got him just tapping into that, and that's where his strength is in in yes. being able to tap into it. I think that with this film, it just isn't um, it just isn't well executed. It has all of the passion and all of the politics. Yeah. It just doesn't have the execution.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's in dialogue with history and factual footage in a really beautiful way and engaging and entertaining, but it feels like there's a doco strapped to a B-movie, strapped mm. to yes. something else. It's just a bit of a Frankenstein. Mm.
2: It was great seeing two of the dudes from The Wire, though. I love that yeah. show so much. <laughs> I
1: do too, and I love I love Clark Peters so much yeah. in particular. I really like love Isaiah Whitlock. But having him do the she <laughs> as a bit of a fan service moment felt weird. There's a great post credit scene where the cast and crew do that and i love uh, that and that's kind of where it belongs but yeah. during the film <laughs> so to five bloods is now screening year streaming on netflix you're listening to primal screen on triple r
3: triple ah
1: you've been listening to primal screen on triple r with flick ford Sally christie and myself paul anthony nelson we discussed the assistant screening in cinemas from monday june 22nd screening
0: in cinemas i know it's crazy <laughs> <isn't> it? <laughs> yeah.
1: catch uh, and if you're uh if you're game to head to the cinemas uh catch flicks q a at the classic with with the assistant director kitty green on june 22nd or at the Lido on june 23rd um check their websites for details um and we and by we i mean flick spoke to the director um whom we graciously thank for her time on our show and we discussed the five bloods which is now streaming on netflix you can also subscribe to the primal screen podcast via itunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts next week while cinemas are slowly blinking back to life our home spotlight specials will continue and next week we'll welcome back an old member of the crew we'll we'll bring her back from the grave as we turn a (laughs) non-ultraviolet spotlight on vampire movies of the 1990s. Hit us up on our social media channels and tell us what your favourite 90s vampire movies are and we'll show you ours. Uh, Just search for Primal Screen on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to find us. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. To Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show.